Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. John is joined today by Professor Adam Frank. Professor Adam Frank received his PhD in physics in 1992 from the University of Washington. In 1995, he was awarded a Hubble Fellowship. He joined the University of Rochester as an assistant professor of physics and astronomy in 1996. He was promoted to associate professor in 2000 and to professor in 2004. Professor Frank's research is in the general area of theoretical astrophysics and in particular the hydrodynamic and magnetohydrodynamic evolution of matter ejected from stars. He is the author of three books, most recently Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds, and the Fate of the Earth. Adam Frank, welcome back to the program. It is great to be back and talking with you guys again. Now, in your new book, you you go into uh, first uh, your own story and how you became interested in astrobiology. And this is something that happened to me, too. I remember in the 1980s, I was just looking at the stars blazing overhead as a 10-year-old, around about 1984 or 85 and wondering, is there anybody out there? And I still have not answered this question, and none of us have. So give us a, a, a sort of a, a feel for what drove Adam Frank to look and think on the concept of alien life. Well, I've been thinking about it, yeah, since I was five years old. And the reason why I wrote this book, the, the Little Book of Aliens, was to be able to kind of give people a sense of how far we've come from when I was a kid. So for me, it began when I was five years old, literally, because I wandered into my dad's office and in his library on the the lower shelf where I could reach, he had all of his 1960s pulp sci-fi magazines, you know, like Isaac Asimov's Astounding Stories. And I remember looking at those covers with, the, you know, their bug-eyed monsters and guys in spacesuits and alien landscapes. And I was like, I was stunned. I was like, this is it. This is, this is all I want to know about. <laughs> and so it was very clear at that moment. And, you know, my dad was a writer, but he was really into science and science fiction. So he saw my interest and he took me to, you know, the Hayden Planetarium, the planetarium in New York City regularly, much to the chagrin of my sister. But, uh, and he also fed me a steady diet of science fiction, of great science fiction. He would put in my hands, you know, Dune long before I was really ready for it. Isaac Asimov stories. I remember him waking me up one night to uh, watch late night TV. This was back in the 70s. And he had, he watched, we watched uh, Forbidden Planet together, right? With its vision of a, advanced alien civilization that had disappeared because of their own folly. So for, you know, this question has just been with me since I was a kid. And then when I entered graduate school and, you know, became an astronomer, it never left. I, I didn't work in SETI and we can talk about why, but I never lost the interest in the question. And then in this modern era, as the exoplanet revolution began and astrobiology really became a going concern about 10, 15 years ago, I started my own research program in it. And now pretty much it's almost all I do. I had a similar experience. My dad was an engineer and I loved sci-fi and he was sticking all the books and everything. And, you know, along with my mother, who was amateur geologist, 
or sticking sticking all the books in my hands and I was reading everything I could mm-hmm. and watching reruns of Captain Kirk and all of that in the mid 1980s and that really okay. served to make me wonder but the thing is is that how far we we've, we've come <laughs> we didn't even know exoplanets existed back then right. it was still an open right. question now we have thousands and thousands of confirmed exoplanets you know they're ubiquitous they're everywhere which ticks a box for life in the universe the question is is why don't we see an example of a biosphere from a distance and why is it so ambiguous so ambiguity in the question of aliens how are we going to deal with this how do we how do we how do we proceed with things like the james webb space telescope and characterizing exoplanet atmospheres how are we going to nail this down Yeah, well, the interesting thing is about like, well, why haven't we seen any evidence yet? It's because we couldn't look. I mean, that's really the basic. We we only, you know, gained the capacity to look like a few months ago on some level, right? You know, first of all, for most of astronomical history, we did not have, we didn't even know whether there were any planets to look for, you know? And we believe planets are the basis of life, that you need a, a surface in order to get the you know, have a puddle of water or something to have the chemistry get going, the biochemistry get going. We didn't know whether there were any planets until 1995. That's when we discover our first exoplanet. And then we start building up this census of exoplanets. That took some time. But really the most important thing is that in order to find a biosphere, you have to be able to see the planet in a way that, you know, these planets are, of course, light years away, tens, hundreds of light years away. You need to be able to somehow, through the light, the imprints in the light, be able to get an indication, signature, that there is a biosphere there. And literally, we, have, we haven't had the telescopes to do that until, on some level, the JWST. The JWST is the first telescope that can do this process of that we call atmosphere characterization. And even JWST is right on the hairy edge. Like it, it probably does not have what we need to see a biosphere unless we get really, really lucky. But, it's, it, but it is the first one that has really what we need uh, on, some, on any level at all. And then the telescopes that are gonna follow it in the next 10, 20, 30 years are really going to have, you know, they're gonna be tuned. So what comes after the JWST the next big telescope of this space telescope is already, what is it called? It's called the Habitable Worlds Observatory. Like astronomy is now all in, and that zillion dollar telescope is going to be tuned to be able to find what we call biosignatures. Or if we're looking for technological life, if we're looking for life that you know has industry, that harvests energy for uh, to, to, to to do things for a civilization, what we call techno signatures. So we finally, you know, we couldn't do it before because we couldn't do it before. Now, in regards to looking at radio, the radio astronomers, now they're they're in a better position because the radio telescopes have been capable of picking up alien signals, the wow signal, things like that for many decades earlier than optical astronomy or infrared astronomy. So how in depth have they actually looked in radio for example the bathtub you know of the ocean so what is our survey of looking at star systems looking for radio signals it seems to me we've barely just started still is that is that a good sense of that yeah that's a great way of characterizing it i mean so i think people have to understand that what we call classic what i call classic seti right the classic seti searches where you're you know you're using radio and in particular in the beginning people were really using radio to detect a beacon you know a a signal that somebody was purposely you know putting out that was aimed at you right and they that they had to make these assumptions because if you didn't do that if you assumed that they were just you know broadcasting in all directions then you ended up needing a uh um a transmitter that was so powerful it was almost a star. So there was this, you know, uh, underlying the kind of technologies we had, you needed somebody to be beaming a message at you. So I'll talk a little bit about that later. Why, you know, for me, that was always a little bit problematic, but it was also the only thing they could do, so it was fine. But people also had this idea that like, oh, you know, Frank Drake did the first search 
of this kind, classic SETI search in 1960. And since then, well, of course, we've searched the whole sky and we haven't found anything. So, you know, where are they? It must be uh, that there's no alien life. And the problem is with that is it's not true. And it's not true for the saddest of sad reasons. There has never been a lot of SETI, a lot of SETI searching, because there was never money for SETI searching. So, you know, because of the giggle factor, and we can talk about what the giggle factor is, but because SETI got associated with UFOs and little green men, you know, it was always uh, looked upon, it was always a little marginal, more than a little marginal. And so the, the pioneers of SETI, who were very, very brave scientists, had to put up with a lot of scorn. And also there was just never any funding. So if you think of, if, if you want to add up all the SETI searches that have ever been done, all the times somebody searched a star for signals of intelligent life. If you, so imagine that the, the stars are, you know, the sky is an ocean, right? And you have to search that ocean. If you add them all up, how much of the ocean has been looked for, looked at? And the answer turns out to be a hot tub. Basically, we've looked at a hot tub worth of the ocean and yeah, and we didn't find any fish, so to speak, you know, and are you then going to say like, well, there's no fish in the ocean. So, you know, the fact is we've just never searched, right? There's other than a few brave pioneers, there never has been much steady searching. So, you know, the claim that, you know, we've looked and we haven't found is just the great, the idea of a great silence. There is no great silence because nobody's been able, nobody's had the funding to listen. So, yeah. So I think that that that's, a really important thing for people to understand because now finally not so you know not only with radio but more so this explosion of what has happened in what i call you know i think the whole field should be called techno signatures and seti is just one part of it with techno signatures this field we are going to be looking we finally have the funding to start looking for biosignatures and techno signatures and you know nasa's all in on it the astronomical community is all in on the search for life in the universe. And so finally, now we're going to start looking. It should not be surprising if we find it, though, because one of the things that bothers me is that you'll get a lot of people saying, well, we're alone. The problem with that is that you can't ever prove in the universe that you're alone. You can only prove that you're not alone by picking up some sort of a techno signature. So, but if you're going to start saying that life on Earth only happened here, then you're saying that an organic chemical process which is what life ultimately is, is unique to Earth. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem. And that, that gets into the the, uh, the scorn factor in that we should statistically be part of a population, right? In other words, we should expect to find a technosignature eventually, right? Well, I think, you know, it's funny because as I talk about in the book, right, so much of the book is about sort of the balance between uh, alien optimists and alien pessimists. So the book starts with the history, right, which begins, you know, 2,500 years ago. It's amazing how long people have been asking this question. You know, with sort of the battle between Aristotle, who was a pessimist, who said the Earth is the only planet in the universe that has life, and Democritus, who was an atomist, who said, no, 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 every planet, every star is going to have planets, and every planet has the possibility for life. So that, that battle has been going on for a long time. And what's remarkable now is, you know, over the entire history, that 2,500-year history, it's been just about opinions, right? There was no data. And so it's amazing now is we're about to get data. Now, I am an optimist, but I also, let's unpack this a little bit, right? Because you look at the night sky and you look at all the exoplanets and, you know, you're sort of overwhelmed. In that paper I wrote with Woody Sullivan back in 2016, where we worked out how many habitable zone planets there were in the universe, you know, it turns out to be 10 billion trillion planets. And each one of those planets is an experiment, right? Nature has run the experiment and life and possibly civilizations. So it's asking a lot to say that every one of those experiments failed, right? But the problem is until, you know, we don't really know yet what goes into making life or allowing life to thrive so that you get a you know a biosphere or eventually a technosphere so so if there are one if there are 10 billion trillion habitable zone planets and that's not an inhabited planet that's a planet where life you know where liquid water could form on the surface if the odds per you know per planet is is you know less than 1 in 10 billion trillion 
then you've just run out of planets, right? You know, it's a kind of a probabilistic thing. Now, I don't think that's the case, right? But I, you know, it's that it's really still my opinion that that's not the case. So, so the statistics alone, while for you and I probably make us lean in the direction of there's got to be life elsewhere. Until you do the search, you just you just don't know. And that's what's so exciting. That's why I wrote this book is I wanted people to see finally, right? Finally, we're going to start getting data. And, and one last point on this along these lines. You know, if while you can never prove there's no other life, if you you can start putting upper limits, you know, or limits on it, right? If we search for 100 years and we search thousands of stars and we don't find any, that's at least beginning to tell us that, okay, we can't prove there's no other life out there, but we are beginning to prove that it's rare, right? So that's what we'll see. Now, in regards to thinking about alien life and thinking about what we might look for, and there's no guarantee that technological alien civilizations look like what we think they will. They may be indistinguishable from nature for all we know. But things like the Kardashev scale and the Drake equation, do you think they're getting long in the tooth and that we need to rethink just how we look for aliens? That is a great question. And I think that is what's so exciting about this moment. Because when you look at all of astrobiology, which used to be called exobiology, you know, the, the thinking about life in the universe, I'm actually working on a New York Times op-ed on this, exactly this point. We've always, or almost always, thought, began with the terrestrial analog, right? We just tended to think that life whether it's it's smart life or dumb life, right? So when I make that distinction, dumb life, I do not mean any disrespect, is microbial or forests. It's the, you know, it's the stuff that doesn't build civilization, civilizations. It's very sophisticated, right? But I'm just gonna use that distinction. Whether people were thinking about dumb or smart life, they just tended to sort of use Earth life as the uh, as the example and the template. And I think one of the most exciting things that is happening now, and I talk about this in the book, is because finally we're finally really committing, the scientific community is committing to this search, we're starting to systematize, right? We're starting to look at our ideas and really say, like, wait a minute, right? We don't want to get mistaken by the very particular history of Earth's biological lineage. So what we what you see a number of people doing in our group. So, you know, I am the principal investigator of NASA's first grant to do to look for techno signatures. What everybody's beginning to do is think agnostically. What does it mean to plan a search that is agnostic about the life that you find, right? You're not expecting it to be carbon-based. You're not expecting it to have DNA. You're not, if it's a civilization, you're not expecting the, the, you know, the minds which built the civilization to use integers as the basis of their, you know, their mathematics. So that's the really exciting thing now. And it really stretches, the fun part is it really stretches the imagination. So in the book, I'm trying to give people some understanding of what this agnostic thinking looks like, because that's going to be the best bet at making of whether we find, you know, I'm looking for, for biospheres or technospheres. The problem of habitable zones as we see them, we think in terms of liquid water on the surface of a planet that's essentially an analog of Earth, but we have found from our own solar system that ice shells over oceans is more common. So do you think that what, what the real solution to the firm paradox is, is that most intelligent life is locked under ice and completely unaware of the cosmos because <laughs> I can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. You, is, is that a good direction to go? But the thing is, do we have any hope of ever detecting intelligence under an ice shell moon outside of our own solar system? No. <laughs> well, not at least right now. I mean, that's, you know, in some sense, it's true. The habitable zone was a great idea, right? It's one of those classic ideas. You know, in the book, I talk about how that era of the 1950s, from 1950 to 1960, that so much amazing foundational ideas were laid down, right? And, you know, no matter if you're, no matter how you're interested in life in the universe, you got to pay attention to that decade, uh, even for the pop culture stuff that got laid down. Uh, so the habitable zone, which is the idea that what life will need water to get started, was a great idea because it really is reasons to think that, you know, water is pretty amazing as a solvent. 
But as we've seen from our own, our own solar system, as you point out, we've got at least two or three or four other places where there are oceans, huge oceans, more water than on Earth underneath, you know, uh, underneath moons, you know, with, like you said, ice covered moons. But as you say, the problem is that any, if a civilization develops under those, are in those that we'd never know. Or even if you know, there's intelligence, even a biosphere under those worlds, we would never know. So I think we just, you know, if we're, if we're looking for life at this point on distant worlds, we have to be shooting for the stuff on worlds that can, that will have bio, you know, that have detectable biosignatures. So that's a subset. And, you know, maybe we're going to end up missing the boat because of that. But, you know, you can only, you can only look where you can look. Right, it's, it's the analogy of the, the keys under the lamppost. I mean, beginning, that's where you look. You look for the keys under your lamppost. And if you don't find them, then, then you try and be more ingenious about how to look, you know, in the dark. If I want to answer the ice shell question, we're just going to have to conquer the galaxy. That's, that's, it's simple as that. It's the only way we're. That's the only, I agree. We just, we should get started, start building those, you know, those starships now, build the Battlestar Galactica now, and then we'll be ready. And then we can, you know. Then, then we can we can start you know thinking about it now. Rogue planets. So this galaxy can sit here and toss out rogue planets, Earth-like planets that are covered in ice again, but with geothermal energy, they may maintain oceans, and that opens up the idea of intergalactic <laughs> inhabited planets. That that I mean, how would we ever? <laughs> that then that gets into not being able to prove that you're alone again. In other words, if you're, unless you detect a technosignature, you're not going to find a way to know if there is other life in the universe because it's just not going to present itself and you can never know. So the only thing we can do is look for technosignatures, essentially, right? And, and biosignatures to an extent, but that's, you know, getting close. What is the distance limit? In other words, all right, so we're looking for technosignatures in whatever form they might be. Arnold louvers or radio signals, whatever. How far can we look, even just within the Milky Way? Before I answer that, I just want to talk about how cool rogue planets are. Because if you're a space pirate, like where else do you want to be based but on a rogue planet, you know? So um, I love the idea of rogue planets. But it's a good question, right? We're not going to, especially... Now, you know, just to your point, though, I'm not sure if rogue planets could be intergalactic, because I don't think you'd have to toss a planet out with an escape velocity to get it out of the actual well, gravitational well of the galaxy. So I have a feeling those, I mean, that might happen once or twice. I Once or twice, I don't know. But I, I have a feeling that, that most rogue planets will be interstellar, not intergalactic. But it'd be an interesting calculation to do, whether or not you could ever get the escape velocity to actually... Well, I, I think another question would be is if you toss out a star system, does its planets go with it? I, I would assume that they would. I think it is. I think I've seen papers on that. I think that the planets in general do get, unless it's super duper violent, you'd have to really accelerate a star super fast to unbind its planets. So I think that, but I'm not, I would, don't hold me to that. Would life, would life survive an encounter at the center of a galaxy with a supermassive black hole in that radiation environment? And there's lots of questions because tossing planets out, yeah, that's a, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other, whole it's other a whole thing. Other animal. Um, but okay. So, but to your question of distance, I mean, at right now, right, it all depends on the technology you have. And so right now, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm sort of making an educated guess. I think we're really talking about, if we're looking, talking about the method of atmospheric characterization, which we can unpack more, but, you know, just to sum up, atmospheric characterization is the ability to peer into a planet's atmosphere and, and uh, detect signatures in the light, like use the light that passes through the atmosphere to look for fingerprints of either biology, of, you know, a, a biosphere or technology, a technosphere. And I think the limits are hundreds of light years. I don't think you're going to get, be able at this point, you know, you're not going to be able to get to thousands and thousands of light years. The, the, and the reason for that is you just need a lot of photons. You need a lot of light to be able to get a really good spectra to be able to have enough light that you can break it up and compone, look at the, 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 the different wavelengths of light. You just, you know, you need a lot of signal basically. And to get a lot of signal, you need to capture a lot of photons and to capture a lot of photons, you'd see you're a lot better off if the thing is closer. So I think the next 30 years or so, 
Um, and some, uh, you know, maybe one of your listeners and we'll, we'll, who knows more about this than I do, another astronomer. Uh, I think we're looking at hundreds, you know, hundreds to a thousand light years, which is the neighborhood, right? Which is like, that is still the, that is, you know, just down the street, so to speak, for the galaxy. Yeah, that brings into interesting scenarios because anybody in the galaxy that's that's doing what we're doing and looking, the vast majority of the galaxy, basically all of it past you know around about a hundred light years, has no idea we're even here, well, other than if they've looked for biosignatures on this planet. Well, I mean, I do. You know, with bigger telescopes, you can go farther. I mean, at some point, hopefully, you know, if we make it through all the mess that we're in right now, you know. From- possible nuclear war to climate change and maybe even AI, you know, who knows. But then, you know, at some point we may build telescopes that are huge. We, you know, we could build interferometers in space that would be able to see out thousands or 10,000. So it's right now, this is just a technological limitation of our age, you know, an, a, a civilization that's more advanced than us. And I'm even talking like just, you know, a hundred years, 200, 500 years would probably be able to detect biosignatures, you know, across across much further maybe even you know tens of thousands of light years an alien civilization that has a an interferometer or such you know telescope that um you know is the size of new jersey in orbit you know (laughs) and looking at the milky way galaxy trying to characterize its exoplanets several million years ago knows about this planet in other words, this planet has been screaming its biosignatures for billions of years. <laughs> it, we have, yeah, yeah, billions our, our of years. Our planet has amazing. betrayed us. Yeah. We can't keep quiet, <laughs> at least about the biosphere here. So chances are that while we may be ignorant still on the question of, of alien biospheres, it is possible that someone else in the galaxy confirmed and answered their are we alone question by looking at Earth. Is that viable i think that's you know yeah i mean what what reason would you have to not consider that possibility right you have to really have and this is the interesting thing in this moment that we're in where you know as i said so there was this long history of the giggle factor that any mention of particularly intelligent like the search for intelligent life you know civilizations was met with raised eyebrows and you know a snicker and you know, this was, again, because of the association with UFOs. And what happened in particular was in NASA was a couple times in the 80s and 90s, NASA tried to fund some SETI projects. And then some congressman would stand up and be like, we're not going to waste taxpayer dollars on searches for little green men. And the funding would get cut. And of course, you know, this was like less than a drop in the bucket of the budget, um, even NASA's budget. But, you know, they were making hay. They were getting some political points out of it. So NASA was like, oh, okay, we are just not touching this. This is a you know, red hot chili pepper and we are not touching this. And so, yeah, the whole search kind of went by the wayside. But now it just, as you're talking about, as you're bringing up, you know, what, why wouldn't we begin to, now we know that we could see biosignatures from a distance. And here's the interesting thing. What would happen if we found a planet with biosignatures? Let's say like 10 years from now, you know, the next space telescope detects like a beautiful, it's oxygen and methane and uh, what is it? A sulfur, a free SMS, the, 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 oh God, my brain isn't working right now. The stuff that Plankton put out, I'm suddenly, it'll come back to me in a second. You know, these are all good biospheres. If you found uh, a biosignatures, excuse me, a sulfur, uh, uh, dimethyl, dimethyl sulfide. That's what it is, dimethyl sulfide. It, uh, so, you know, and if we found really good evidence of a biosphere, what would we do? We would, you know, keep watching. We'd build an even bigger telescope. We'd, then we'd build an even bigger telescope. And at some point, we'd send a probe, right? We'd send a robot probe if it was close enough. Let's, let's say it was, you know, you know, within 10 light years. We, you know, if humanity makes it, we would figure out how to, you know, uh, shoot a probe there. And then we'd do another one and another one after that and another one after that. So... You know, at that point, you realize like, wow, if we have been screaming our biospheres to the or our biosignatures to the galaxy for three and a half billion years, then suddenly solar system SETI, as they call it, begins to make sense. Like maybe we should be looking in the solar system for somebody that came through two billion years ago, you know, sent a probe. And now the probe is just tumbling around somewhere in some orbit or something you know, somebody dropped something on the moon and, you know, they set up a base, you know, and again, these would probably be robots, uh, set up a base to look, you know, uh, to, to probe Earth's 
bio uh, biosphere and send information back. And that's one I'm doing a project right now with a couple of other people where we're trying to calculate how long the lunar lander is going to be visible, right? You know, and we're using the lunar lander as a proxy for somebody came by a billion years ago, dropped a probe on the moon, you know, and there's very, there's no weather on the moon. There's only the, uh, what they call gardening from micrometeorites. But yeah, how long would that actually last? So should we go look for them on, on you know, places like the moon? No, oh, of course, because it's a, as you said, it's it's like a, it's like a locker, you know, where things can can survive right. billions that's a great of image. years. They can, yeah. they can just sit there. But you know, another interesting one that's always intrigued me is the idea of as we study asteroids, finding one that's really depleted, <laughs> as though it's been mined. You know, yeah, right. That's been you know, mined. by a passing right. von Neumann probe, you know, or, or you remember, you remember Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Rama novels where some, oh, oh my God, one of my favorite yeah, so, so some von Neumann probe passes through a billion years ago, doesn't care about Earth. It's just looking for raw materials from an asteroid so it can go to the next star system <laughs> and then we find it and there, there it is. That's a, you know, not a very well talked about techno signature, but depleted asteroids is interesting. The question is, is how many do you have to look at? <laughs> right. Right, right. But, you know, the idea of solar system SETI is gaining some momentum. The, the, you know, the more people are talking about it. And it, again, it's sort of like, you know, what you need is the, once your civilization starts doing it, right, then you're like, you know what, I mean, once we do it, then it's like, okay, well, we have one example of this happening. You know, why wouldn't we think that it's possible for others to do it? You know, we did a, the group did a paper, Jason Wright led it, where we looked at, we examined the idea of, okay, what do you think you're going to find first, a biosignature or a technosignature? And, you know, there's this assumption, this bias that, oh, you know, biosignatures are going to be more common than technosignatures. But really, that is just a bias. And the reason we think that is because, oh, well, you need a biosphere before you make a technosignature. That's true. But once you make a techno uh, technosphere, then the interesting difference between them is biospheres can die, right? And when a biosphere dies, the biosignatures die with it. A technosphere can die, but if you've put out a bunch of space probes, you know, uh, then its technospheres continue living on. Um, we already have, we've, we have five, you know, we have five technosignatures, meaning space probes that have already left the solar system, right? Now, nobody's you know, it's going to be very hard to find those because, you know, they have very weak radio transmissions. But there it is. There's proof of principles. There are biosignatures, artifacts that are already leaving the solar system from Earth's technosphere. Mars has a bunch of Earth's technosignatures on it. And right, you know, biospheres, you'll never get a biosignature that's left the biosphere. Technosignatures can leave the technosphere and go create other technospheres or just travel, you know, travel from place to place. So on some level, you might expect that technospheres are going to be the first thing you're going to find. Now, I'm not sure if that's true and I'm not going to put my money down anywhere, but it really argues that you need to be searching for both biosignatures and technosignatures. You shouldn't put your eggs in either basket. Modeling the expansion of an alien civilization, say someone else arose, you know, many millions of years before we did and has started to colonize the galaxy. It seems that once you start, it seems to, exp and I know you've done work in this, it seems to exponentially <laughs> go and we, we really should be seeing alien civilizations, right? In other words, the great silence really should not be because once you get to a certain level of technology, you can colonize the galaxy and it would take you millions of years. But if you have millions of years, then there you go at sublight speeds. So does the fact that we don't see aliens everywhere, which is what I think Enrico Fermi asked, is, you know, does that seem strange to you? Well, Enrico Fermi did not ask, do we see them everywhere? He wanted to know, why don't we see them here now? Right. And if you're into UFOs, you'd be like, they are here now. But, you know, if you're not into UFOs, you're like, no, they're not here now. And various I'm not really wildly bothered by that. But what I what I call the direct Fermi paradox, the direct Fermi paradox is how come they haven't landed on, you know, Earth or landed in Washington or Paris and announced themselves. And I'm not bothered by that for a number of reasons. First of all, when did they land? Right. If. You know, as we showed, I think Gavin Schmidt and I showed in that paper back in 2018, 
you know, if there was a civil, if there was a, a dinosaur civilization on Earth 500 million years ago or 100 million years ago, there'd be zero evidence of it anymore because the Earth gets resurfaced every every couple of million years at all it takes. So there'd be no physical evidence of a, of a species, you know, of a civilization that, that could have been here for 10,000 years, right? So, you know, you have to think about time as well as space. So when did they arrive? And unless they live forever, you know, and civilizations in general don't live forever, they, then they wouldn't be around anymore. And so when in that work we did, so Jonathan Carroll and, um, and I and Jason Wright, we did, uh, we did simulations of this. And it is absolutely true that the expansion wave, once it gets started, will cross the galaxy pretty quick. You know, a civilization can hop from one place to the other pretty, you know, pretty quickly on the timescale of the evolution of the galaxy. But if you allow civilizations to die, then you actually can end up with holes in the uh, where there just is nobody for a few million years or hundreds of millions of years. Um, and in that case, then, yeah, maybe that's where we're living. We're living in a, a hole. Nobody's, you know, maybe somebody visited five, you know, three billion years ago, but, but you know, there's no evidence of that. And right now we're just living in a hole that's not particularly deeply colonized. Now, the other part about why don't we see them, that's the what we talked about before, what I call the indirect Fermi paradox. And that's because we haven't looked, right? We just haven't looked. So, so why aren't they here? I think there's pretty reasonable answers for why we don't see aliens here right now. And then the um, why haven't we seen them elsewhere is because we haven't looked. The UFO phenomenon, which is undoubtedly going to come up in the, uh, the comments, is, you know, the problem is, is that it is really ambiguous. <laughs> you know, there's no landing on the White House lawn or anything like that. But right. it does deserve attention because, you know, we'd be really stupid if we're looking for alien life and we missed that, <laughs> if that's what that is. <laughs> yeah, so that would be bad. That would be bad. <laughs> so what are your views on that? Do you think that we really need to take a very serious look at the UFO phenomenon and get rid of the stigma that surrounds it. Well, I think it's good that the pilots in particular, you know, feel free to, you know, now there's less stigma for them reporting. And I'm, you know, I'm all for the NASA panel that is going to do the investigation. You know, most of all, because people are really interested. So for that reason, Uh, but you know what I will say. So, you know, this is, there's a nuanced answer here. The, The first answer is there is no, evidence, hard evidence, the kind of evidence that I would be required to produce if I claimed that I found life on an alien planet. There is no evidence in existence that links UFOs or UAPs to to alien life, right? So so let's think about the kind of evidence we have. Um, You know, it's a lot of blurry photographs. It's a lot of stories, you know, narratives, even by people you trust, but they're still stories. And then you get reports of radar detections, right? But none of these are the kinds of evidence that I would be required by my colleagues to produce if I said that I had found alien life. And so let's go through this a little bit and think about it, right? So personal testimony is just, there's nothing you can do with personal. Science can't do anything with personal testimony, right? We know for sure that personal testimony is the worst kind of evidence. You know, even people who have, are, are reporting in good faith, memory is not a record. Memory is, memory is easily confused. Memory is, you know, distorted. It's just not a good report. If somebody says, I saw something move faster than an airplane can move, okay, what speed are you talking about? You know, oh, I made an estimate. That's not what you're going to be able to need to be able to say like, oh, that was actually moving in a way that a, 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 you know, a terrestrial spacecraft couldn't move. Then you get these images, right? And, and, and the thing that really I, I always want to emphasize is that, you know, the images have not improved in quality in, you know, 70 years, even though, uh, for, Photographic technology has exponentially increased. There, it's always fuzzy blobs because people send me pictures, right? And they were like, "Well, what about this?" And it's like, "Oh, another fuzzy blob." You know, even the stuff on the Navy videos were fuzzy blobs. And I want to compare that to the Chinese spy balloon. There was this image that the pilot of the U two spy plane or the U two, I think it was, that's what it was. But the pilot basically, it looks like he literally is holding up a 
a cell phone and taking a selfie because you can see the reflection of his helmet in it. And you can see the spy balloon, right? And the image is so clear that you can make out the rivets on the solar panels beneath the payload, right? And if, you know, the sky was full of UFOs and amazing aircraft, we'd have, uh, we'd have you know, in- infinite numbers of images like that. And we just don't. And then finally, there's the radars, which is like, look, you know, if, if you want to do science, you need to know what your instrument is. Having somebody tell me, yeah, we saw it on radar is not the same as saying like, okay, show me the radar, show me its, its history. Let me, un- let me take it apart to make sure that it doesn't have, um, kind of glitches it has. There's been some really great sort of, uh, reporting, uh, or just stories by Phil Metzger, who's a, uh, um, astro engineer about how he, you know, he, for years he worked, with radar for he did worked on various radar systems for NASA and he talks about all the glitches, all the phantom reports, all the problems with radar. So the answer, so the, the, the emphasis on, we just don't have any kind of data yet that would uh, link these um, sightings to alien, to any reason why we would think they have any kind of really crazy performance characteristics that are linked to aliens, but I'm all in favor of doing the science. And I have, a, there's an entire, there's a bunch of chapters in the book that talk about UFOs and UAPs. And there's a whole chapter on what would you need to actually ha- carry out a true, open, transparent, scientific search of UFOs and UAPs, which I'm in favor of. As am I. And the book covers that actually quite well. And that was one of the things that impressed me is that you're not afraid as a scientist to say UFO. <laughs> right. And, yeah. Which is important. That's the first step, because right. in the past, there have been scientists that got pilloried. James McDonald, uh, right. J. Allen Hynek and people like that that looked into it and said, eh, you know, there might be something here and ended up by that same sort of machine in Congress, actually, to, uh, you know, shut it down and ridicule it you know, little green men and things like that. But again, I don't like the idea of sitting here saying, well, this civilization that's surrounding us is unique. You know, there are no others. There's no way you could ever. That's actually the more preposterous (laughs) claim is that we are alone. And, you know, you just shouldn't we assume that we're not? I don't think we should assume that we're not because I can actually imagine a bunch of ways that we are. Because even if like, Let's imagine that the universe is constantly popping off civilizations. But look at our civilization. Like, you know, it's a little questionable about how long we're going to last. It's not entirely clear to me that, you know, 200 years, 500 years from now, this kind of high-tech, global, space-faring civilization is still going to be here and intact. So imagine you're constantly spinning off civilizations, but none of them last more than a 1,000 years. You know, then you just don't overlap. You know, at the moment we're... If that's true, then at the moment we're looking, there's nobody out there. Also, it's possible that um, that civilizations are just hard to make. That that intelligence of this kind, this kind of intelligence, is hard to make. I mean, you look at Earth's history, and you know, microbes appeared immediately, and technological civilization, you know, technological civilization took another three point eight or whatever three and a half billion years. So, I, I agree with you. I am uh, I am an optimist about this, but I can certainly imagine ways in which you know it's hard to make long-lived technological civilizations looking for the trash of past extinct civilizations is another form of a techno signature so Mm -hmm. if if it really is a situation where it's ships passing in the night but not quite rather it's ships passing a billion years apart a civilization pops up in the Milky Way, goes extinct, and it doesn't see another civilization for a billion years, then it it, it should be no surprise that, that we don't find anything. But at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised if we find an artifact. You know, we find the space jockey from Alien, you know, and, and we're like, right. it, you know, <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're sitting here. I wish they would have left. I wish I wish Ridley Scott would have left that a mystery and that we just. I know, <laughs> I know the unpacking. I know all the new parts of this, that, that franchise. I'm like, meh, meh. You know, the first, the first two were so good. And then almost everything afterwards got stupid. It, it needed the mystery. It needed the mystery. Yeah. And just coming yeah. out of nowhere, finding the space jockey while you're fighting a, a oh. xenomorph. And then you find this, this ancient alien spacecraft. <laughs> it, it just, that was, great. Yeah, it was great. But then, then we found out how the sausage was made in the later movies. But, um, <laughs> but, 
But that, that idea, though, of looking for defunct equipment from a past civilization just cooking through the solar system. So is that another way that we could do it? Rather than, you know, of course, looking on the moon and Mars and, you know, looking for things preserved there, but just moving through the solar system in, you know, that style of a Muamua that might be a perfectly valid way to uh, look for a techno signature, right? Yeah, yeah, but actually, we don't even have to do it in our own solar system. I mean, the nice thing, again, about techno, techno signatures, as opposed to biosignatures, is that exactly techno signatures will, you know, certain forms that you can imagine will be long lived. So we're working on a paper now, we have this idea of service worlds, right? That if you're a civilization and you got a nice habitable planet and there's other planets in, or moons in your system that are barren, like the moon or Mercury, or, you know, that's a great place to have your industry, right? Why not park all of your energy collecting and whatever other kinds of uh, activity you wanna do on that planet? So the idea of a service world, a world that has been co-opted for, you know, because there's nothing living there, you can't really do any damage to it, to be used just for um, for for, for industry or whatever, is, I think it's a pretty compelling idea. And, you know, if you, if someone built something like that, there could be signatures on that that would last for a very long time. So, for example, imagine you cover half a moon in solar panels, right? Those solar panels are not, they're going to degrade slowly, but they're not going away, and we already know from work that people have done that the reflected light off a solar panel carries a signature of the panel, right? So that the you know the in, there is a techno signature uh, in reflected light off of solar panels. We call it the, the ultraviolet edge. So for a very long time, probably there would be, and this this is a calculation that needs to be done. You know, we're working on just the the slab of metal part. For the, that project I was telling you about, but eventually we should do the um, uh, long-lived solar panel for the same reason. But you know, that's a nice example of a techno signature that could last hundreds of millions of years, perhaps long after the techno the technosphere, right, the civilization that built it was gone. Impossible planets, so terraformers. So say we go to Mars, and over the next 10,000 years, we turn it into an Earth-like environment, if we could, you know, if it, it has the materials we need, which right. that's in question. But we, we, we terraform Mars. We suddenly have a very unnatural planet. You know, astronomers out in the galaxy might say, well, that star system is about four and a half billion years old or so. And it has a planet, Mars, in it that has an atmosphere that it should not be able to hold on to. Technosignatures in that regard, in other words, altered planets, seems like a fruitful uh, place to look, right? Yeah, that's a great idea. The, the, uh, the idea that terraforming, which is large-scale planetary engineering, would be you know, a very bright techno signature and again there's a i have you know i talk about this in the book and i talk about okay what do you want to do you know if you ended up your planet's a lemon what do you need to do to make it you know to to, to turn it into that dream planet that you've always wanted so i run through the sort of the, the the prospects of what you have to do in terms of right you know if you don't have an atmosphere you got to build an atmosphere and that may require you know tossing com comets at it and crashing them into the the surface or doing things like pumping chlorofluorocarbons into the atmosphere which you know we know those are problematic on earth because of the ozone but actually they're very good greenhouse gases so if you wanted a warmer planet you would put uh cfc's into your planet and chlorofluorocarbons are we wrote a paper on this uh, and i talk about it in the book that we could detect those now with you know with um telescopes, you know, with the James Webb Space Telescope, we could detect Earth levels of chlorofluorocarbons on uh, uh, nearby, nearby planets orbiting nearby stars. So the terraforming becomes a great idea. And Jill Tarter, right, who is just the, the, the hero of the story of techno signatures, she was the one who suggested, you know, if you see a, you see a, a solar system and you end up with like four worlds that all have the same temperature, the same atmospheric pressure, the same concentration of chemicals in them, then that's a really clear evidence for that they've been they've been terraformed to a, you know they've been engineered for a particular kind of climate. You know she's so good. Uh, uh, Jill is there, you know there when we find uh, 
our first biosignature uh, or techno signature, there needs to be a statue of Jill, you know, in front of the, the building because she's just been incredible. So I think that's a great idea, right? For, for, you know, some number of worlds stacked in a row, all with the same climate. That's a techno signature. You could extend it out and say nearby star systems. So clustering. In other words, you could you could infer that, well, they terraformed that star system, but they've also terraformed the nearest 10 star systems. Yeah, right, right, right. That would be amazing, right? If you found a bunch of stars that were within, yeah, you know, that were cl- relatively close to each other and they all had identical climates, that would also tell you. And that 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 gets into unambiguous. In other words, there's not much of a way to do that without a civilization. Exactly. Right, right. And we can call it the Freon civilization because of the CFCs. <laughs> the, the, free, the Freon planet. <laughs> the Freonians. Yeah, the Freonians. <laughs> now, looking at disequilibriums. So that's the big thing about Earth is our oxygen disequilibrium in the atmosphere, the chemical dis- disequilibrium. And that seems to be the key is it's to finding biospheres is when you see that weird disequilibrium of gases and there's no clear way that that could happen but the problem is of course is that nature can produce most of those gases on its own you know sulfur dioxide or something like that it can it can make it you know so you don't need a civilization but when it all goes into disequilibrium is the question so do we have the capability with James Webb right now to detect disequilibriums? In other words, if we put Jim, James Webb 10 light years away and looked at Earth, could we detect the oxygen and the methane and the weirdness of the atmosphere? Yeah, actually, there was just a paper by Victoria Meadows' group in Washington that looked actually looked at Earth and looked at looked at whether or not. And I think the answer was yes, you could see. And I'm not really sure what the limits are. But but the conclusion was that the, like the, the ozone the, the the ozone lines you know the, the signatures of ozone and oxygen are uh, so Earth's biosignatures are detectable would be detectable with James Webb and I'm not sure exactly how far out you have to go but certainly with the next generation of space talk, right you know, with the habitable world space because that's what it's going to be tuned for so you know disequilibrium is a really interesting thing because like you said you know that you know there are because of photochemistry, because of you know light, the, the starlight or sunlight, you can get planets that are have disequilibrium. But usually, you can tell, you know, like, oh, don't worry, you can tell that if you saw it, you'd be like, oh, that's because of you know photons streaming into the into the atmosphere. But the kinds of disequilibrium we're looking for, where life is what's driving the the system, the atmospheric system, out of equilibrium. You know, there's there's a range of different ways to look for that. And this goes under the rubric of what we were talk, talking about with the agnostic biosignatures or techno signatures. So, for example, Sarah Walker's group at the university at Arizona State University has done a lot of work in thinking about networks, you know, using the not the not the molecules themselves, but the network of chemical reactions in the atmosphere. So, you know, you'd look at the atmosphere, you'd see a bunch of different chemicals and you'd look at their concentrations. And from that, you could recreate, you could build the reaction network. Who's, you know, which chemical is reacting with whom and how strongly. And there is a really interesting idea that you can see a very important difference between networks that were come from biology and networks that are like random. There was a very clear difference in, in the sort of properties the network theory properties like who's how many partners you have you know how many how many other chemicals are you connected to it looks very different on average for a biological network than it does for a chemical network and that's a beautiful example of of you know the network is reflecting the disequilibrium meaning by disequilibrium all we mean is that there's life and it's doing something it's pushing the network out of where it would be if there was no life, you know, without it, the, the, all the, the chemicals reactions would kind of come to equilibrium. There'd just be, you'd be able to tell that like nothing's going on there, but here with disequilibrium, you're driving it. You're pushing new chemicals constantly into the atmosphere, which force the, the whole network to rearrange. So this idea of disequilibrium for biosignatures or techno signatures, I think is really important and really interesting. And that's a, that's a real future for us. We're not going to, you know, as Sarah likes to say, a molecule is not a biosignature. Right. And that's in in response to like oxygen. I still think oxygen would be great. Like we find oxygen, that's going to be pretty amazing. Um, But, you know, a molecule alone is not an unambiguous biosignature. Things like the disequilibrium, the the network theory, 
uh, approaches. That I think is going to give us the full context. Life, and you, you, you coined this in your new book, the little book of aliens. Life hijacks a planet. Where can everybody find your book? My book is available online or wherever fine books are sold. So you know, Barnes and Noble or you know things like that, or your local small bookshop. You should frequent those if you can. Now, my last question for you, Adam, pertains yes. to another one of your papers, the Silurian Hypothesis. Does I... that idea say there's something to the UFOs and it's, it's you know, there's, there's a, a signal among the noise, which I think there is, a signal among the noise, and we start to unravel it. Can we ever prove a close alien actually is an alien because of the Silurian Hypothesis? Well, right. The Silurian hypothesis speaks to ancient aliens, right? So the idea there is that, look, after a couple of million years, there will be no physical evidence left over. Not fossils, because, you know, very, very little gets fossilized. So, you know, if you had a civilization lasting 10,000 years, which would be a long time compared to how long our technological civilization has lasted, there would be nothing left. And the surface gets completely redone and there'd be no fossil, you know, there'd really be almost no way to tell that so and so that interesting thing is right so for ancient aliens no way to tell for even present aliens right even if ufos what i, I you know jacob um hawk misera makes this point of like let's say you you know you do the kind of search you know the, the kind of investigation nasa wants to do and you build a, you know a network of instruments and you watch the skies with them and you find something moving at mach 500 that just made a right hand turn right which you're like whoa that's incredible what would you do next, right? So you'd be able to say like, all right, that is moving in a way that no earthbound or earth terrestrial craft could operate in. And in fact, the G-forces of that are so strong that we don't even have metals that wouldn't shear, right? But that's all you have. What do you do next, right? You got to do now more science, right? Because again, they didn't land on the lawn, White House lawn. You can't shake their hands. You don't have a sample. So now you've got to build the next kinds of detectors that could go further and give you another, the next level of characterization. So the interesting thing is that even if we were to find evidence that UFOs or UAPs were non-terrestrial, we still just have to keep doing the kinds of science that we're doing with the other stuff too, right? Everybody thinks like, well, that's it, we're done. It's like, no, unless unless, unless you want to either shoot one down, and apparently if you know, they're going to be this high tech, they're not going to get shot down. Or, you know, or they don't land on, on you know, make themselves visible to us. Uh, and give us, you know, samples, we're just going to have to keep doing the kind of remote sensing science that we're doing for the alien planets anyway. All right. There will be a link to Dr. Frank's new book in the description below. And Adam, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I look forward to the next book. Are you going to write another one? Uh, I will. But first, my work right now is getting to um, level four of starship design in Starfield. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's my next goal. I'm still <laughs> trying to get past Batman. One of the Arkham Knight. I, I, I'm, I'm, up, I'm up against a boss and I can't get past. Oh, him. that's the worst when that happens. Yeah. You can always lower the difficulty. Kind of lame, but hey, man, if you need to do it. No, it's very lame because I start at the lowest difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're really, then you're really yeah. shot. You can't beat oh, that man. lowest difficulty. Oh, man, I'm just not very good at video games, even though I love them. All right, I look forward to next time. Thanks, Adam. Take care.